Let's, let's read Psalm 85 together, just to find somewhere to ground ourselves for the next 15 or 20 minutes and to begin to fuel our prayers and our hearts and our imagination. So Psalm 85, and it might appear on the screen. If it doesn't, it's in the Bible in front of you. Psalm 85. You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us again, God our Savior, and put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his footsteps. Amen. Amen. So it was a little more than 10 years ago, maybe 11 years ago, when a friend of mine called Mark asked if I would like to walk 100 kilometers for charity. 100 kilometers is just under 70 miles. It's two and a half marathons. The walk was unbroken. There would be no sleep. There would be no stopping. I said yes right away. Who wouldn't want to do that? Um, I thought, it's walking, right? The only problem you have when you're walking is boredom. Surely you can walk forever. I'd heard of walking groups. Uh, they were not often formed of people like me. And uh, I thought, I, I'm a, you know, we as a group here of, of friends, we are um, specimens in our physical and athletic prime. What could possibly go wrong? We didn't imagine we would do any training. We thought we'd just turn up on the day, uh, bring a water bottle, and walk 100 kilometers unbroken, and that would be fine. But about a month before the event, we heard some rumors on the grapevine that some of the other teams were doing some training. So we thought, you know, the, the pressure was building. And with about three weeks to go before the event, Mark organized our first training walk. We would meet at Shaw's Bridge. We would walk to the Civic Center in Lisburn and back. That's 13 miles. We would then have a bite to eat, and we'd walk out to Jordanstown University and back, which is a further 22 miles, 35 miles in total, 50 kilometers, a little bit more than half the event itself. And if we could do that, which I imagined would be a total breeze, because it's walking, right? You can walk forever. Um, then we would be fine. We turned up on the day. We walked out to Lisburn and back. It was great. There was plenty of chat. Everybody was in good spirits. There was fun. And when we got back to Shaw's Bridge, we had a bite of lunch and we headed out towards Jordanstown. And somewhere between Shaw's Bridge and Jordanstown, the whole scenario began to unravel. 
and every one of us started to deteriorate. Uh, there were stiff backs, aching bodies, cramping muscles. The conversation began to die away until we were just walking in silence. And nobody really wanted to say anything, but we knew that very slowly and very painfully our spirits were breaking. And we arrived at Jordanstown University. We, somebody had this bright idea that we should eat something or drink something that was daft. Uh, we just turned around and headed straight back home. And the walk uh, back from Jordanstown University, um, it was like 11 or 13 miles, was utterly grim, okay? Every one of us was dying a slow, painful death, but nobody wanted to say a word about it. And Mark was out the front, stoic and strong, striding on towards Belfast at 100 miles per hour. And everybody thought, if he's fine, then we have to be fine. So we went on and on and on and on. We got back. It was nightfall. It was dark. I remember getting in the car and somebody dropped me off at home. I just about made it up the stairs. And I, I came into my bedroom, collapsed onto the bed, and I physically shook. Uh, I think I might have been in shock as every ounce of physical energy had been drained out of me by walking, right? Walking. And uh, the following day, texted some of the lads, and most of them were in the same position. Um, somebody was uh, saying they'd been sick, somebody else had been um, up all night and hadn't slept, somebody else was standing in the shower, you know, trying to revive themselves. The only person we hadn't heard from was Mark, and everybody just assumed that he was fine. And then uh, eventually about maybe lunchtime the day after the, the training walk, we heard from not Mark, but Mark's wife. And Mark's wife told us that she had phoned his boss that morning because Mark was in the fetal position in his bed and was physically unable to get out of bed. Not as in like hyperbole or a figure of speech. I mean physically incapable of extracting himself from his bed. So she phoned the boss and said, uh, Mark won't be coming into work today. Um, it was at that moment that the thought entered my head. We are three weeks away from this. We need to double our distance. I'm not sure we're going to be able to do it. But we had three weeks, and we really quickly organized some more training. We got on the internet. We did some learning. We leveled up. We figured out we have to eat properly. We have to drink properly. Uh, we have to pace ourselves. We might have to buy some new equipment. We might have to learn how to do this thing right. And um, three weeks later, we turned up at the event, uh, humbled men, but much more ready than before, and uh, 26 and a half hours of unbroken walking later, we crossed the finish line. 100 kilometers, uh, two and a half marathons back to back. But it took a little bit of contending. It took a bit of perseverance. Uh, and then at the end, there was a medal. The psalm that I've just read to you, Psalm 85, is a, a prayer for awakening. The psalm has an extraordinary heritage. So it was read at the first ever sitting of the U.S. Congress. And Samuel Adams uh, made a proposal that men of uh, all different Christian backgrounds and faith traditions should hold hands and should pray this prayer. And George Washington got down on his knees to pray for Boston Harbor. And one onlooker said it would have melted the hardest of hearts. Um, Ken Newell and uh, his Catholic friend... I've forgotten his name, 
But Ken Newell, uh, whenever the uh, 1981 ecumenical movement uh, of the Fisherwick and Clonard um, parishes was set up and they began to pray for peace in Ireland, they adopted Psalm 85 as their prayer for peace in our land. And um, Ken Newell, at their first meeting, read from Psalm 85 and he said, I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people. And they used this psalm to contend for breakthrough in Northern Ireland. And in many ways in the 30 years since, their prayers have been answered. There was contending and perseverance and then breakthrough. That's the discernible pattern in the stories that the psalm is telling us uh, and the prayer that the psalm is giving us. The first uh, person mentioned here in the psalm is Jacob. Uh, and it talks about Jacob, the man who wrestled with God in Genesis 32. Uh, it's an extraordinary story. Jacob uh, wrestled with God all night long and he didn't pray Politely, he didn't say to God, uh, God, if it's in your will and if you might be willing, and if I ask ever so nicely, would you bless me? He said to God, I won't let go of you until you bless me. He contended with God. It's not a pattern of prayer that we have often learned or grown up with or been conditioned for. Pete Gregg once said that prayer doesn't have to be plight. It's a dangerous thing to say, isn't it? Prayer doesn't have to be plight. Prayer is catalytic and defiant, sometimes even violent. Martin Luther said, I, I, I laid hold and I attacked the Almighty with his own weapons, quoting every promise of Scripture that I knew, telling them that if he would not keep his promises, I could not henceforth put my trust in them. George Whitfield, great revivalist of the Great Awakening, um, said, take up the cords of violence and with them pull down a blessing on your neighbor's head. Whenever Jacob went to God and wrestled with him, he contended for a blessing. John Piper said, the danger with prayer is that you take a wartime walkie-talkie for spiritual warfare and turn it into a domestic intercom to increase your comfort. When Jacob wrestled with God all night, he contended with God he persevered in prayer, and then in the morning, there was a breakthrough. Psalm 85 talks about Jacob, the man. It also talks about Israel, the nation. Jacob, of course, became Israel. Israel as a nation was exiled and broken and desolate in their rebellion against God. And they prayed for restoration. And as they contended with God and as they persevered in prayer, there was a breakthrough. Uh, and a faithful remnant of Israel was restored to their temple and to their land, and they saw the blessing and the favor of God again. Talks about Jacob the man, talks about Israel the nation. And finally, uh, the psalm finishes with a foreshadowing of Jesus. It talks about the place where love and faithfulness meet together, where righteousness and peace kiss each other, and where faithfulness springs forth from the earth. This psalm is a prayer for awakening, but it's a prayer also for shalom, for a peace and a blessing and God's favor that is uh, deeper 
um, so deep that it's within the very fabric of their society. As he prays for that, he has this um, kind of foreshadowed image of a kind of messianic figure, probably not really known, in fact, almost certainly not known to the writer with the same clarity that we see Jesus. Um, But you begin to see that the fullest revelation of God's shalom, blessing, peace, and favor only comes at the cross, the place where love and faithfulness meet together, where righteousness and mercy meet. When we pray for awakening in our city, when we pray for God's blessing and favor, there are many different ways in which we would love to see the city transformed and ways that we would love to see God's blessing poured out. But the epicenter of that transformation and the ground zero, the place where that transformation begins, is where the human heart becomes aware of the person and love of Jesus. When we pray for awakening in our city, we pray for people to know the person and love of Jesus. That's where it begins. There are many bold prayers for awakening that we might like to pray. There are many ways that we might need to contend and to persevere in prayer for the transformation of our city, but the lens that we do that through is the people who we know and love who don't yet know and love Jesus. When I was growing up, um, I had a friend called Chris, and some, some of you might, might know Chris, but I grew up and I had a friend called Chris as a teenager, and he and I were similar in lots of ways, the same kind of interests in life, the same trajectory, the same year group in school, and um, we went on weekends away together with the same church group. The only difference between us was that I had good friends who looked after me, and Chris didn't. He had bad friends, uh, and so much of that was outside of his control. Uh, everybody needs friends. And it's not easy sometimes to make those choices when you're kind of deeply in relationship with people. But I had good friends, and Chris didn't. And by the time Chris was in his late teens, uh, that kind of influence, that toxic influence of bad friends had effectively ruined his life. Um, I remember a time as a teenager when I I was kind of finding myself in church environments and Chris's life at 17 or 18 was all about dependency on alcohol and drugs. Not really choices he had made on purpose, but just things that had been imbibed into him by the people around him. And I, I remember every time we would see him out in um, like a social situation, he always looked really ill. Uh, and we just were aware that the choices he was making were leading to his life just spiraling out of control. And... Um, At one stage in his early 20s, Chris was violent and volatile, really sick, really lost, really addicted, and just in a a total mess. Um, But he came from a, a family who prayed. And at a time whenever he was in and out of different hospitals and courts and institutions, they contended with God for Chris's future. Uh, And I remember I was part of a prayer cell, and for seven years we prayed for Chris, and there were so many different things we prayed for. Every week there was different things on the agenda, but Chris was always there. Week in, week out, we prayed for him. He had an uncle who would pray for him every morning and would tell him all the time that he was praying for him. He had family and friends that prayed for him and contended. And uh, 
There was one, one particular weekend, Chris was down in inner, inner East Belfast somewhere and he had taken some drugs and he'd passed out at the side of the road. And some guys came past in a car going to McDonald's and they were from a local church. And one of them got out of the car and couldn't leave him in the state that they found him in, so they phoned an ambulance. An ambulance came and picked him up and on the way to the hospital, uh, some of the guys from this local church said to him, Chris, if you get well, if you get better, we would like you to come to church. Uh, and Chris agreed to. Two weeks later, uh, in hospital, they kind of pumped him full of a drip and cleared all this rubbish out of his system. And he, uh, he's a man of his word. He's such a funny guy. He ended up, he, he went to church and nothing particularly remarkable happened, but it was unusual that he went to church. He was very like hostile towards things of faith. And two weeks later, he went to church again. Nothing really happened that was unusual. But about three weeks after he'd encountered this group of guys heading to McDonald's that had kind of prayed for him and loved him, um, we invited Chris to Summer Madness. And we did that every year, but he never showed up. And on this particular occasion, he showed up. And we invited him to come down to the meeting where there was just an environment of worship and people encountering Jesus and and the Spirit of God, and he, he never would have come down to that, but this time he did. And before there was anybody speaking or any ministry opportunities, he just walked in the back door, straight to the front, up the aisle, to the left, where the prayer ministry team was. And after maybe 12 or 13 years of struggle and pain uh, and shame and addiction and regret, Chris approached somebody and said, uh, I just really need to give my life to Jesus. What it didn't tell you was that On the Thursday of that weekend, his mum came home to find a life ring like you would get at the beach or at the swimming pool, just sitting outside the front door. She assumed that he'd brought it home when he was drunk. He swore blind he'd never seen it before. She brought it into the house, and as she read her Bible and as she prayed for him, God spoke to her by his spirit, and he said, this weekend I'm going to throw your son a lifeline. Chris today is a full-time missionary travels the world, he takes the same hope that he has experienced and offers it to other people in so many places where there's only darkness and pain and offers them the same kind of transformation that he's experienced. But there was a cost. There was contending. There was perseverance in prayer. And then there was a breakthrough. We begin this month praying for awakening in our city and for transformation in Belfast and the lens that we're going to do that through as we begin. There are many different types of transformation we'd like to pray for, but we're going to begin tonight with a number of prayer stations, different uh, kind of fuel for prayer written up on those. But I would love you to think specifically um, and look through the lens of people who you know and love And just allow your heart to uh, experience the compassion that God has for them. God is sovereign in these things. But an expression of God's sovereignty is, is a total commitment to partner with us. And you might sit there tonight and feel like some of these prayers that we have on the wall are exceptionally big and bold and difficult prayers to pray. And I'm just a total bluffer. I have a friend who says we're all bluffers really. I think that's so true in a Christian context. We're all bluffers, really. But God in his sovereignty is totally committed to partnering with us and in in his movement and in his bringing 
of awakening to souls and to cities and to lands. He wants to do it by stirring a heart in us for prayer, by allowing us to look through that lens. I'd love to invite you tonight to pray, to enter the field and move the ball down the pitch, to step onto uh, the field of battle and to make a difference, to pray as though God was real, to pray for transformation and renewal in our city, and to do it through the lens of people that we know and love, that they would come alive to the person and the presence of Jesus. But it takes contending, and it takes perseverance, and faith to believe for a breakthrough. In Jesus' name, amen.